Kia ora. Welcome back to How Not To Be An Asshole. I'm Samuel Takani, one of your hosts, and it's just me this week, and I'm going to be chatting to a very good friend of mine. His name's Daniel Sanders, and he has recently, I guess in the last year, um, started a, a small art gallery called Parasite, uh, and he is going to tell us all about that. I'm pretty excited about how queer-focused it is. Um, but yeah, listen to the rest of the podcast uh, to see what I'm so excited about. There we go. Cool, there we go. Hey, Dan. How are you, Sam? I'm good. I'm going to call Dan Sanders Dan 1, and Dan, I'm going to call you Dan 2. Sweet. Okay, cool. I don't cool. think it'll come up too much. I don't think it will either, no. <laughs> okay, cool. So, hi, Dan. How are you going? I am good. I'm just at work at Basement Six Club. Just finished. Um, day here. Well, the, the um, benefit of the listeners, why don't you maybe go into a little more detail about where it is that you're working right now? Uh, so I work at Basement Sex Store and Cruise Club, which is one of New Zealand's oldest cruise clubs and sex stores in the country. Um, it's an owner-operated business. It's been going for about 14 years. Um, and, yeah, I've worked here for the past five years. And um, I guess through that I've witnessed uh, how – the business has kind of changed over that short period of time due to different factors, um, things like regarding, I don't know, urban developments around Cairo and all these kind of things, um, which is something I'm interested in. Um, and I guess like that, that you're the cruise club, the cruise club where you're working is not necessarily like why I asked you to, to chat with me today, but I feel like it definitely ties in, right? Because it definitely um, ties in. Definitely ties in um, because you are running, you're operating a, a small uh, artist-run space, like a gallery on K Road, which is very close to where Basement is, right? Like Basement's just off K Road. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. And that's, that's kind of like what I wanted to talk to you about. So why don't you – and it's called Parasite, Parasite. And, Dan, why don't you maybe just tell us a little bit about Parasite, what it is, what you do, what your, like, goals are for it how you conceived of it, et cetera. Um, so Parasite's been going since February this year, 2020. Um, and it's a gallery that focuses on exhibiting um, new work by artists who explore like the socio-political context of everyday life, but in particular through like queer narratives. Um, so all of our artists, um, uh, LGBTQ in some way, um, and so is their work, like addressing queer issues. Um, yeah, I started it, I guess, fundamentally, I was just really bored with Auckland to start with, um, but also uh, it emerged out of like a bigger conversation around like uh, representation of LGBTQ people in art galleries. Um, so would you say there's like a decided, there's like a lack or there's an absence of 
LGBTQI representation in, in art in New Zealand, even beyond Auckland? Yeah, I, it's, that's kind of tricky to, um, I think it's like a really complicated issue. Um, I don't think there's a lack of LGBTQIA artists in galleries, but there's a lack of language um, from institutions to be able to articulate uh, the queer aspects of their work or their identities, or there's like sometimes what is perceived as like a shyness of, of institutions like um, coming out and saying that they're working with queer artists in whatever kind of way. Um, there tends to be, they hide that kind of language and or don't use it at all. Um, Why? Yeah. Um, I think, I think historically uh, queerness is seen as some kind of dissent and it's something that I agree with and I think it's like a really interesting methodology. But um, I think, yeah, it's like also a lot of queer art historically has been quite erotic in nature, featuring like, you know, dicks and nudity and sexual practices and all this kind of stuff, which is something that um, traditional the traditional art institution may have frowned upon or um, stayed away from unless it was viewed in like a traditional art historical kind of canon or something. So that's a really interesting point is I was just having this conversation with my flatmate like literally 10 minutes ago. Um, we were talking about uh, the, like the idea of queer art itself and like how you would even recognize what, what queer art is, like what is it categorically? And we were kind of like stumped. We were like, uh, like, because obviously we know viscerally what it is when we see it. But then, <laughs> what do I yeah, articulate? Totally. Like a, a different thing. And we kind of figured, like, maybe it, queer art is about or has historically to date been about desire. So, like, a queer desire. And it's definitely easy to see to see that, it, like, it, when it's about queer desire. So, either, like, desire or it's about, um, like, a sort of resistance to normativities. So, like, queering heteronormativities and things like that, which I guess yeah. is also about desire. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and I mean, I think that's an interesting point. It's really difficult to kind of articulate or sum up things really nicely when talking about queerness in whatever way regarding art and, and other political aspects as well, um, because it's impossible to, um, well, I think, I think it was Leo Bassani who was talking about how, um, like ages and ages ago, when we refer to the gay and lesbian community, um, we're creating this big fiction because um, there is actually nothing that unites or creates some kind of uniformity for um, gay and lesbian people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, thinking about queerness as like maybe um, a, a politics and what that could mean and all the different ways it can be employed in art is something useful and interesting. Um, but yeah, in terms of just recognizing stuff, yeah, it's difficult and that's why there is an importance for there to be um, language around it, I guess, from that's, institutions. That's so funny. It's like you were just saying, um, Leo Bassani talking about how there's no such thing as like a gay or a lesbian community. Um, and I guess that is not something that I've ever thought about or ever thought to interrogate, like the, the existence of a community at, at all like I guess I'm like a gay guy living in central Auckland so I've just like taken it um very much for granted that the community is is somewhere here in the background and I'm member to it by living on K Road but like yeah mm. how much of a community is there when 
the only thing you have in common with these other people that is allegedly unifying you is your sex lives. I mean, unless you're fucking yeah. that person, like, how, what, what do they actually have to do with your life? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's also misconceptions with that because when we think of like the the LGBT community or something, um, you might assume that it's aligned with some kind of radical politics or something like that based on its history with legalization and blah, blah, blah. Um, but there's nothing that actually orientates gay lesbians to radical politics at all. Um, and I think that's something that Leo Bassani talked about, but um, I think the good thing about thinking about it that way is that it opens up lots of room for people to come in and really start to question what is queerness, what is queerness's relationship to radical politics and what is radical politics relationship to queerness. Because I guess like those communities, as we've known them, like, I mean, uh, if you're thinking about something like Stonewall and the, the communities that emerged around that, and I'm just going to assume that everyone listening knows that I'm talking about when I say Stonewall. Um, you know, those, those communities that emerged from Stonewall, they were kind of like, you know, they were necessarily formed because people needed to unify to kind of take on really shitty discriminatory uh, policies, you know, which yeah. we... Which we don't, I mean, we, which we do have today, but not, not necessarily to the same degree, you know, like, mm. I mean, and I guess that's why I personally feel like we have this like splintering within the alleged community um, or ha have, especially have done so recently with, with pride at being a primary example, like, you know, rich white upper middle class gay guys not seeing the necessity of being more inclusive. Um, yeah. Of not including, like you know, not having like more of a, a, a lesbian representation come come Pride Month, or uh, having more trans inclusive practice, things like that. Because I guess yeah. for a rich, like a middle class white gay guy, the fight is is over, right? I mean, like <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think that's something really interesting to think about in terms of. Um, institutions as well in their relationship to queerness um, where all of these kind of things and pride events and all these kind of things um, for a lot of people they are very much like a middle-class white fantasy that doesn't actually represent anything for a lot of people um, so yeah yeah I think that's really interesting um, I think it was like Lee Edelman was talking about how um, another old gay theorist um how there's all these this this like mythological gay community who are who have been perceived to have a position of failure within social structures and society and how they're they're working towards um to leave this category of failure and enter into this category of success which is why these organized like so-called communities or something come about but um he argues uh, in a really negative way that there's a lot of power in failure and embracing failure. Um, and But I guess there's limitations with that because, I don't know, there's no direct politics that come out of that. But, yeah. Well, that makes me think of, like, I mean, uh, makes me think of, and definitely I, you know, I'm pro-gay marriage or whatever. I think gays should be able to marry. I think anybody should be able to fucking marry if they want to. But I remember before the bill was passed here or even in America when it was like this whole conversation, I remember thinking, I don't give a fuck if, <laughs> if gays are, are, are allowed to marry or not, you know, like 
because to some extent for me it feels like a, a certain kind of like assimilation like um you know we whatever culture we have had there's that mythical we again with that that community that may or may not exist now whatever culture <laughs> that we have had exists as like exists in this marginal space exists outside of having the same civic liberties as our hetero peers so i feel like there is this like almost tragically assimilationist trade-off now that we do have access to like a normal married life or whatever you know that yeah being gay means so much less now (laughs) because i don't think i don't know i don't know why like have we won have there been victories have there been triumphs if if the trade-off is this is is this like cultural death (laughs) yeah totally and and marriage in particular like uh again that's like something that is very much like a a white fantasy that doesn't belong to a lot of people um and i think there's not just marriage there are other things too um like trans acceptance in the military and like i don't know all these other kind of things where um it's it's the state uh recognizing lgbt people only if they are acting within a particular way or conforming to particular ideologies um and becoming respectable worthy sexual citizens and if you're not a respectable worthy sexual citizen by conforming to these things um there's not a lot of help or opportunity there for you or recognition for you of you um i think yeah, that goes in, in terms of um, marriage and, and these more like bigger state kind of ideologies, but also um, localizing like art context as well. I think it works in a similar way. Going back to like representation of, of queer artists, um, <clears throat> I do tend to see that when queer artists are exhibited or when queer stuff is uh, talked about, about the, the respectable good sexual citizen who has those opportunities and gets given that space um yeah there's an unwillingness yeah i don't know (laughs) so these are i feel like these are potentially like all the kinds of conversations or or the kinds of critical thinking about queer lgbtqi being that you're trying to platform um with parasite that you're trying to um you you've tried to establish a space where it's possible to have these sorts of conversations and to be able to articulate something outside of this like assimilationist maneuver where you know gay wins equal cultural dearth or whatever yeah absolutely um yeah absolutely um and i think parasite amongst many other kind of uh artist-run spaces or um, more grassroots kind of ways of organizing that are often led, you know, um, by women or queer people or people of color or something, um, do provide alternative ways of, of thinking through all these systemic kind of oppressions that um, state institutions uh, enforce. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember where I was reading this, but I was definitely reading this this week. Um, Fuck, I wish I could remember who this was now. Um, But they were talking about how the kind of identity-based rhetoric that we've shifted into now, um, we used to be in like an immunological paradigm where it was like us and them. And and there was like this big imperial machine, like, you know, it was Western, it was white, it was moneyed, and then there was everyone sitting outside of it. And 
the, you know, the machine was seeking to kind of like expand its borders and imperialize the wilds or whatever. And so I think it was easy for that machine to articulate like self and then this other, whether the other is like, you know, a, uh, whether the otherness is ethnic or uh, premised on gender and sexual orientation, blah, blah, blah. But now we've shifted into this um, this dynamic uh, where it's not other, it's it's dif- difference. So it's like now when we, when there's like friction between like, uh, the, like micro identities and things like that, it's, it's not othering. It's like the system attacking itself because those others the system is trying to it's trying to include them so it's like the response is autoimmune so it looks at things like this resurgence of white supremacy just as an arbitrary example as being like an autoimmune response like a system that's Mm. trying to trying to kill itself and and like this expansion or this explosion of like micro identities that have already always existed but the system is just trying to articulate them it's something like a it's like an immunological burden that the system is taking on yeah, true. That's interesting to think about. Um, yeah, um, I've been thinking of galleries, you know, going back to like the se- good, like respectable sexual citizen and, and how like in terms of LGBT people and, and art galleries anyway, um, how a very particular uh, person, if there is to be a representation, it's a very particular person who is represented or given opportunity or whatever. Um, and even just that um, kind of does reproduce or, or produce some kind of weird othering, like it's like an inclusion at the expense of an exclusion or something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting about it as, as a completely self-contained kind of process. But um, well, that's yeah, just like um, like you're talking about. Um, you know, maybe queer. Some queer practitioners will be allowed into that inner circle where, you know, an artist gets a private dealer and, and they're successful, but it'll be at the cost of, like, whatever they're doing, whatever their output is, it can't be uh, as, it can't be inflammatory, it can't be, like, you know, essentially mm. explicit. Things that, like, a queer, a queer output, cultural output or a queer methodology have historically been about. Yeah, and that's something practitioners can't move away from as well. Like, not everyone's afforded the space to distance themselves from their identity so much or their sexuality i mean i just feel like um it's like that thing with good brownies and bad brownies which mm. uh, i literally just had this conversation with someone the other day because obviously down at auckland art gallery they just had that the massive opening of that huge survey show of contemporary um maori art and like we haven't had a show of that size and of that scale since the early 2000s like literally i think it was 2001 or something <clears throat> You know, and it's like, and obviously the show itself has been like, a lot of people love it. I love it. I think the show is objectively fantastic, but a lot of people have been a little bit pissed off because of course it's, it's, it's logistically impossible to represent like contemporary Māori art as it is right now, like with any sort of universality, like so mm. there has necessarily been some exclusion, but they've tried very hard to, to, to minimize that necessary exclusion. But yeah. I guess ultimately who who crops up in a Western canon as like a contemporary Māori artist will depend upon who is the least offensive, you know, to like a marketable sensibility. Yeah. And the same is, it can definitely be said for queer practice. Definitely. And I mean, I think it's important to remember too when talking about galleries like the Auckland Art Gallery um, and other 
big art institutions like that is that they are state institutions. Um, so when thinking about queerness or, you know, Māoridom within that space, um, I think it's important to bounce it off like Māoridom or queerness within the state. Um, like there's so many things that happen outside of the institutions within the art world um, for Māori and for and by and for Māori and by and for queers, um, but they just aren't even recognised or something. Um, and and yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 so I guess what we're looking at and what you're trying to um, work against or resist by opening Parasite is mm. uh, trying to trying to platform like. Uh, like a, a cultural output, trying to platform practitioners and voices that wouldn't necessarily be included in like a, a, a in canon because because yeah. is has historically been very conservative because it, ha it has, it has an arrogance to it. It just thinks that its its viewpoint and its its way of doing things is king. Whereas I feel yeah. like now, if if more than ever in in our history, it's probably very important. That the, that the institutions start looking at alternatives because obviously the way we've been going is not sustainable. Like there's this general ambience right now of like global disaster and collapse and like, yeah. I mean, but I yeah, think now the, the institutions, I don't think it's about them doing more things and just putting on these things. Cause I feel like, I don't know. I feel like they need, it's more about a, um, inner reflection and looking at all the systemic kind of problems that uphold um, these exclusionary practices, um, regardless. And I mean, that's going on at the moment. We just had like, you know, this big event in, in the Auckland art scene or the New Zealand art scene has been affected as a total with, um, the, the Mercy Pictures exhibition. I was um, wondering if you were going to bring that up. Sorry. Continue, continue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but without focusing on that, one of the outcomes has been um, that a lot of institutions and galleries, um, even grassroots galleries and things, uh, have been doing all this inner reflection and thinking about their relationship to these very entrenched um, and inherited kind of forms of oppression or ways of enacting oppression. So, um, and there have been institutions that have avoided that at all costs as well. Um, or haven't well, I would before. hope that after Mercy Pictures, every gallery and art space in the entire country has has had a, like a little freak out, and that they're looking at themselves and asking the question: If that could happen there, could it happen here? And also, how? Like, how did that fucking yeah. happen? And how can we make sure that it doesn't happen in our goddamn space or anywhere else yeah. for that matter? Yeah, totally. Um, and I mean, like, I think it's important to think, like, yeah, I mean, I think it's naive to think that these galleries or these kind of institutions can be um, viewed as some kind of protectors or safe spaces or anything like that as well. Um, because inherently, yeah, I don't know. This goes back to the thing. It's like white middle class fantasy. These spaces are just, I don't know. I don't know we've had conversations. I know that we've had conversations about um, <laughs> about safe spaces and like that's you know as the idea of a safe space you know is something is is quite um, you know is, is has 
it's quite prominent now in this like identity based rhetoric that we, we seem to be stuck in. And, mm. and the idea that, you know, it's like by, by establishing a safe space, by establishing perimeters where, you know, certain marginalized groups can be safe, that that's somehow curative or remedial for like, you know, otherwise oppressive infrastructure. And in reality, it's, it's, it's not, it's like, I, I see it as being like crypto racist. It's like, you're sitting yeah. in this space and you're like, you can only come in here if you speak my, like <clears throat> my, you know, my educated, my educated language. You can only come into the space if you have the same educated vocabulary that I do. So what you're technically doing is creating this class violence, you know, <laughs> like. Definitely. And I mean, um, within, art galleries there have been like um rainbow campaigns to like create safe spaces for the rainbow community and you get a little sticker to put on the window or whatever like that and i think um you galleries have to like put like a safe space policy which essentially is just like saying that if anyone's discriminated against they will get kicked out of the gallery but um well, like no poor like people a, without a degree in this space thank you very exactly. much jog along jog along <laughs> And that's the thing, it's like, um, and this is a trend across queer culture in general around the whole world, um, is that there's been, um, I don't know, the popularity of these kind of campaigns, um, it comes at, at employing like an enforcement um, of like carceral penalties um, and, you know, policing and all these kind of things. Um, so Absolutely. God. Suddenly you've got like queerness and, and, and access for queer people to safety and freedom um, as inherently tied to practices of state caging people and arresting yeah, creating people. like creating a green zone type of shit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's fucked. It's like I see it as um, like policing is a great word. It definitely is. And the idea that like, you know, that you're establishing a safe space under the moniker of like, you know, being queer friendly or whatever. And it's just more imperial whiteness. <laughs> like, it's yeah. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, where does parasite stand in relation to that? I know that's a tricky question. As a space. I guess parasite, like, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, No, that's a really tricky one to answer. That, that is a very tricky one, isn't it? <laughs> Do you feel like maybe um, Parasite is the... No, actually, this isn't just about Parasite. What I feel like I'm asking now is uh, how important do you think it is for, like, smaller artist-run spaces to be in conversation with larger institutions like Auckland Art Gallery? Or maybe that already exists. I don't know. And if, if it doesn't exist... I'm not then sure. Be... I've been wondering that myself. Like, I'm not sure of the value in... Um, re-educated you know like it's like with queer people again like in general there's this idea that um educating the police for example against um homophobia and all this kind of stuff is going to address homophobia within the police force um yeah. when it doesn't because it's, it's so complicated it maybe will help like a certain white gay neighborhood be you know less Policed for whatever, but then they'll redirect policing elsewhere. Um, so I don't know. It's really tricky. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like 
there's no value in really engaging with these institutions from grassroots perspective and maybe instead and like creating more and more space through these grassroots organizations to provide alternative ways of practicing outside of um, institutions that in whatever way is inherently going to end up um, participating in, in some kind of state violence. Well, that's just incredibly frustrating though, isn't it? Because it's like, you know, Auckland Art Gallery is a massive institution, right? It is an institution that's, that's you know, objectively true, but then also it's, it's as an institution, it's meant to be an art gallery. And I just feel like, you know, any, <laughs> any organisation that, that's, you know, premised itself on having an involvement in, in platforming art, I, I, you know, it's, it's fixations are, are cultural. It's about cultural input. So why, I guess, I guess what I'm asking is why is there such a, a divide between like, you know, the, the art and the conversations that are being had at, at Auckland Art Gallery as an institution and then down here, you know, people such as yourself who are like, you know, who are operating like smaller artist-run spaces. Why, why does that divide exist? Is, is it symptomatic of like a larger divide maybe between, between artists and then I guess when you become a successful artist, you become a, you become a dealer, right? So does art just have a different currency once you become successful, once you become marketable? Mm. It definitely does have a different currency when you get to that stage. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I don't have an answer for that one either. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you been know. to see that show at, at Auckland Art Gallery yet or are you going to go? I'm going to go tomorrow. I've been working. Um, yeah. It's pretty amazing to be honest. Yeah. Like I know it's been like contentious because there are a lot of people who are frustrated with, with like, or who think that there are artists that should have been included that weren't, you know, artists who are actually contemporary. Whereas I feel like maybe the majority of the art in the show is actually like 20 to 50 years old and that's still somehow deemed contemporary. Like mm. it, is, it is in a Western canon that in a Western art canon that is still contemporary, but the whole point of the show to my knowledge was to upend that, that, that lens was to present Māori art. Um, yeah, in, to get in rid of all these old philosophies and, yeah, create like a new one. Yeah, but yeah. like, I don't know. Because Western um, canon still calls anything anything from the, 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 the latter half of the 20th century contemporary. And to, mm. I mean, in my mind, that's like 50 or 70 years ago. That's not fucking contemporary. Yeah, um, I used to work at the Auckland Art Gallery and, um, I think this is where things get interesting with institutions is it's like they've got this really, um, you know, significant show of Māori art at the moment. But um, when I worked at the Auckland Art Gallery, I can't remember the exact number, but it was like hundreds and hundreds of security cameras um, are positioned around the Auckland Art Gallery where they actively police like um, homeless people and things from loitering, um, majority of whom are like Māori or yeah. um, people of colour. So I think this is where the interesting thing is with like, um, you can put on this big show and have this engagement with like um, philosophies of art and art history, but you're, because of its position as a state institution, it's still inflicting um, damaging things elsewhere. Um, yeah. Well, that, that's, I guess that to me makes me want to ask the question, like, um, what, what is the, the function of art then? Is it expected to have a, a more intimate relationship with 
you know, with ha- um, how we shape policy and, th- and things like that. Do you know what I mean? Is it, is it meant to in- inform in a more direct way how, how we behave in the world? Yeah, I, I, yeah, 100%. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get another beer. Hold up. All right, Dan, you've got your beer. Fabulous. Um, we were just talking about institutions and like a, a bit of a divide between um, uh, the currencies of art at like a, a, a dealer level or even at a kind of like archival, museumological level um, mm. and then like the, the actual level of its practitioners and and uh, I, I don't know what the word is, a more kind yeah. of raw and real-time output. Um, I think something, something I've been thinking about... Um, going back to the really basic um, question of like representation in the Auckland Art Gallery or in galleries in general of LGBT artists. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. It, it goes, like, I'm not sure what that would look like. I don't have any answers. I think it's a really complicated thing. But um, working somewhere like Basement, um, like this, this old kind of cruise club, I guess when we're looking at histories, queer histories, um, spaces like a cruise club that have been going for so long or whatever um, are kind of like archives of all these different um, and really kind of intersectional sexual practices as class stuff and race stuff and all this kind of stuff um, that those nuanced kind of things um, I feel like a really difficult if not impossible to just um, for something like an art gallery to easily um, to archive or create some kind of uh, history of. Um, but then it's, it's tricky because at the same time, I think it's really important to contribute to um, or for there to be like a, a documentation of a queer art history. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. A, a lot of those things, um, a lot of queer art history would happen outside of institutional spaces. Um, historically because a lot of queer artists have been excluded from art spaces that are recognized by institutions like the Open Art Gallery. Um, well, that's like, that makes me, like we were talking earlier about what queer art is and like, <clears throat> pardon me, I just burped. Dan can cut that out or leave it in there, whatever, it's chill. Um, uh, we were talking about what how you would even recognize queer art and I feel like for me, it's, it's either like about queer, like art that's about queer desire, which I, I necessarily resonate with, so it's very easy for me to, to identify that, or art that's poised as some sort of resistance to normativities. Um, mm. And they're oft, often one of the same, because often like queer desire itself will be problematic in a heteronormative space. So even without being like overtly combative, it will just, it, it will be read as being like, uh, as, as, as combative, as like, as subversive. Yeah. And I think that's something that I recognize as being really queer in art as well, is like um, uh, art that is grounded in some kind of refusal um, and, um, I don't know, something that's radically dissenting and just explicitly queer as well, just like in terms of like, I don't know, visual symbolism, like, I don't know, sexual practices, nerdity, I don't know, whatever. I feel like a lot of my, the stuff that I do, like, obviously I'm not an artist, but I write, I feel like a lot of my stuff, which is overtly queer, is, like, based in overt horniness. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so it's, it's horniness. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's going to be queer at Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's important too. It's like, um, I guess something that's really frustrating is that when we, when we tend to talk about art, we use like um, the same, like, I don't know, five different philosophical frameworks to talk about it all the time. Um, and I think there's the, what queer art and queerness has to offer is to completely blow that open um, and, I don't know, show that we don't have to really believe or think in canons that have excluded queer people historically. Um, I don't know. And again, I feel like, again, like the world is, the world's fucked. The world's totally fucked. Like, you know, Western society is, is winding down, you know, because yeah. of like this very fixed worldview, you know, that like that has been, this has been dominant for a century or more. And obviously it's, it's not sustainable because if it, if it was sustainable, then a lot of the problems that we're facing globally right now, we wouldn't be fucking facing. So I just feel like, um, even though we've, we've made a lot of progress in the last few years, you know, um, for good or bad, this whole, you know, the whole woke shit is like a, is a critical flow, <laughs> you know, like not that yeah. memes hashtags are a critical engagement because they really aren't, but I do feel like, um, memes, memes and hashtags have, um, I don't know, galvanized a kind of like a kind of swarming. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think like that's something that's happened is like, um, memes in particular, um, the internet and stuff, um, has enabled people to push back against like, um, orthodox kind of, um, ways of thinking. And, um, there tends to be like a general favor of like what you could describe as like low theory or like, um, like, yeah, people turning, you know, like, what's her name? Jack Halberstein, Stam, Halberstam, writes about it um, and the queer art of failure and stuff, you know, like, and, like, turning to Disney movies um, and Pixar movies and stuff as, as sources, texts that embody lots of queer theory that um, the academies and institutions wouldn't even look at. Um, and it's a way of, like, pushing against that kind of, assimilationist thing to I guess like um, creating your own archive or, or body of resources that um, you draw from in your own practices that institutions wouldn't have access to or wouldn't even look at and there's a lot of power in that I mean I like I like Harvestem don't get me wrong and I love that Queer Out of Failure book um, and I definitely know where he's he's where he's getting at with like looking at Pixar and, and and looking at like queer narratives that exist in these you know, quite mainstream films that are like targeted at like kids and families and stuff. Um, but I think maybe that's unique to, to cinema because obviously like when you're putting a, a film together, Oh my God, cinema now obviously incredibly problematic with COVID. Like, you know, cinema is, I don't know, yeah. I don't know where we're going to go with cinema, but you know, um, obviously when you're putting, you know, making a film, it's like this massive collective effort, like essentially like a, a whole community or like miniature societies established for it, you know, um, for a moment in time, all bound together by this like singular project. And I mean, directors and producers can do, do what they, they can, what they feel they need to, to control every aspect of production, but things do slip through, I think, which mm. is what's exciting about cinema or what's exciting about anything that is like very collaborative. Like we, the more people you involve, the more chaos you're sort of inviting for, 
uh, yeah. for for glitches or yeah. I, I feel like for, and for failures as well. Like, because obviously like, uh, you know, if a producer puts a film out and ends up having a coda that he did not bank on or pay for, he or she would perceive that to be some sort of ideological failure. But ultimately it's like, it's a glitch. It's a glitch. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. Like that's a, 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 I think the book was, yeah, obviously written about cinema, but I think the same um, framework can be applied to art as well. Like um, in terms of just like um, queer artists, um, I don't know, finding power in their resources that they might have access to that might not naturally belong to um, like a, a um, kind of art historical canon of philosophy and um I don't know, just theory, art theory, that um, it has excluded queer thought in practice the whole time, you know, until recent history. Um, so I don't know. I see artists doing that all the time. Selfie culture, just taking selfies, doing makeup, getting lit, you know, like partying, like all these kind of practices that um, the art academy and institution wouldn't even um, acknowledge as proper or whatever. Um, you know, like this, you know, even what we've been talking about, the, the art institution would talk to queer theory through referring to Leo Bassani and Lee Edelman and all these kind of people, but would not consider, um, I guess, more low practices of queer artists um, developing a practice, um, I don't know, from doing things like that, like partying and stuff, I don't know. I definitely, we, we should definitely not underestimate the the radical potential of party. Like, let's, no, let's absolutely not. not. Yeah. <laughs> let's not do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I feel like every society has had like a very interesting relationship with mind altering substances. You know, it's just, it just so happens that in our time, you know, we have a quite a rigorous relationship with, with mind altering substances. And then we also have consumerism. That's kind of like, I guess, ideologically flattening all of our interactions with drugs. I was just thinking about this today. And so it's actually harder to have to generate meaning from our engagement with drugs now and within this metric of consumerism. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm not like preaching some sort of like Timothy Leary bullshit, like let's start an acid cult kind of vibe. But I am just saying it's like we definitely getting a phone call. Oh, reminder, listeners, Dan is at work. Yeah. Somebody ordering a dildo. What's happening? Hello, basement. <laughs> no, we closed, sorry. Bye. Sitting at work? No, we're closed. Um, <laughs> Who the fuck was that? <laughs> I don't know. Some dickie wanting to come and suck dick. Oh, yeah, show. Show, show, show. Leo Bassani is a great one. Didn't he say he, he's the one that said the rectum is a grave? Yeah, that's uh, that's one of his, his famous texts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, what was he meaning when he said that? Does he mean that, like, gay sex is some sort of, like, deathy thanatological force that's pitted against um, society's, like, automatic reproduction of itself? Yeah, I guess so. Chill. <laughs> chill. <laughs> oh, I got chill. It's a chill. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, how, have the response, how has the response been to Parasite? Considering that it's one of the, the few queer-focused, like, artist-run spaces that we have, not even just in Auckland, but in the country. It's been really good. Um, I think everyone understands its value, but I think um, 
yeah, I don't know. It was something I was thinking about. A question that you posed to me was like, um, is Parasite the only thing like that, like um, queer artists run space in New Zealand? Um, I think in terms of presenting physical stuff and having like a, a an extended period of time that things are on show, it is. But there are several other, um, I think, queer initiatives that go on in Auckland and in, across the country that are equally as important, um, but they just have more of like a temporal nature, like um, one night events and things like that. Um, which I think are equally important because um, are you talking about circuit parties, everything like parties and stuff, you know, like yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, in terms of exhibiting art, um, artworks, yeah, it's been really good. Um, it, I think I don't know the way the gallery is structured or something. Um, it's enabled people to engage with queer art that may have just overlooked certain artists in general or something like that or like it's given artists like um space to explore their vision and um stuff without having to kind of curate their voice uh for whatever institution they're exhibiting in which happens a lot when you go for proposals at institutions they'll only accept queer artists who are like have a very particular language um, I was thinking the other day, and I, I don't know how like contentious this is, but I mean, obviously, you and I both know that there is a an institutional resistance or even a social resistance to overtly queer art. Mm. Um, and I feel like maybe there wouldn't be such resistance if we had more of a precedent for it. But I also feel like there'd be more more of a precedent for it if we hadn't had such a significant like queer population die of AIDS. You know, it was like a huge there's a massive yeah. chunk of voices missing because of this pandemic. Yeah. You know, that, that institutions really were very lazy to respond to because it was just poor, poor black queers, you know, yeah. dying of AIDS. And yeah. now, you know, there's like the zeitgeist. I fucking hate that word, but I'm going to use it anyway. The zeitgeist is the horror for it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you said it. <laughs> um, what what shows do you have coming up at Parasite? Um, well, at plug? the moment we have a show on by Owen Connors, who's like a big. Oh, who's drag. that? Who's that? <laughs> oh, it's my boyfriend, everyone. It's my boyfriend. <laughs> um, that goes on until the sixteenth of January. Um, the gallery at the moment is by appointment only, so you have to hit me up on Instagram if you want to come see me or by email. Um, but, yeah, and then after that, um, we've got a show in March by Ken Junkow. Um, Who is that? opens on, like, the 8th of March, I think. Who is that artist? He's like a, a photographer, um, originally from Shanghai, but now based in Auckland, um, who does like really great erotic photography. Oh, delicious. Yeah. Oh my God, yum, yeah. yum, yum. No, it's pretty exciting. Potentially we might be in the art fair, but feeling very funny about that. I don't know if who's going to listen to this. I can't talk about that. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many people listen to the podcast, Dan. Too is it like 
Four, more than four? Four to eight. Four to eight, chill. Oh, you're fine, Jane. Smear away, hey, smear all away. All it takes, you know, there can be a hundred people in the room and all it takes is one person <laughs> to rat you out. <laughs> oh, fuck. Um, okay, cool. I feel like that that's almost an hour and we were just talking shit. Good shit, though. Solid shit. Was a solid shit. Yeah. Really, really vital, solid shit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to think, trying to think of a question that I could ask you before we go or I can get like a semi decent soundbite off you. Um, oh, here's something that I worked up for you. Do you think um, the art market could be, or any kind of like, you know, mainstream market could be manipulated into being receptive to more queer works and practitioners? And all we need is a little more representation. What is the value of representation, I guess, is what I'm asking there. Oh my God, that's such a big question. Um, the value of representation, and I think we talked about this. I think um, I think that the market can be whipped into following trends that are outside of pre-existing institutions like the Auckland Art Gallery, etc. I actually don't think them. Oh, I don't know. Um, and I feel like uh, dealers and art sellers and stuff can also um, redirect their attention to more grassroots organizations and um, educate themselves and develop language to be able to engage with practices that are outside of um, traditional um, class racist and um, queer phobic um, ways of thinking um, and representing people. Um, yeah. Cool. Agree. Agree. Totally yeah. agree. <laughs> I feel like queer people don't need to do anything different. And that's the same for, I guess, any minority group. It's just like, um, I feel like it's gross that we have to, there's a, a sense that we have to somehow get inside this institution and somehow like kill ourselves over trying to make it change when it won't. Um, when there are individual people who are kind of like gatekeeping um, that can be kind of, um, bullied into paying attention somewhere else. Well, it's, I think like, I mean, I've, I've said twice already now that the world is completely fucked. I honestly think that, you know, uh, institutions will be seeking alternatives as a kind of like symptom of like ideological collapse because the, the way the world has been operated since the way the world's the organizing principles of the world since modernity, you know, are exhausted, obviously. Otherwise, we wouldn't be facing collapse, which which we are now on like a global scale. So I think there's just going to be, I don't know, maybe this is my little forecast. I feel like there's going to be some serious like institutional interest in alternatives, like viable alternatives that can um. kind of weather us through this cluster fuck <laughs> that we're in right now, whether it's like, you know, shifting geopolitics or pending environmental collapse. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I hope that there's institutional interest in these alternative practices um, for these alternative practices to get more money. Um, otherwise, like, good on them. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for your time, Dan. Oh, no worries. I'm just going to go, like, mop some piss off the floor and then make my way home. Awesome. Have a great night at work. Love it. <laughs> bye, my darling. Thanks. See you soon. All right. Bye. bye. <laughs>